I teach a professional issues class here at Stanford where I help the graduate students think about how to be a professional, not just a student, and how to think about the job market. And, and one of the lessons is just be nice to people. Hi, thanks for tuning in to Tell Me What to Say. This is Drew Kugler. Today's guest is Dr. Jeremy Balenson. Now, I will let Dr. Balenson explain who he is when we begin the conversation, but let's just say for now that he is at the forefront of some spectacular developments in how we can learn with technology. Now, I'm not alone in my series of grave concerns about the seriously negative effects of technology on how we learn about each other and about the world around us. But Jeremy is committed to making that better. I invite you to listen specifically to not only where he believes certain technology can make a positive rather than negative difference in human interaction, but more importantly, speaking of human, the unstoppable connection between good things happening in our lives because of how we converse, yes, converse with and treat other people. Now my conversation with Dr. Jeremy Balenson on Tell Me What to Say. Thank you, Jeremy, for coming in today. Well, thank you, Drew. It's uh, great to have you here at Stanford University. You are in the Department of Communication. We're sitting here in my outer office surrounded by these plants I've had for uh, about a decade right. uh, that actually need some trimming as I look around. Uh, but uh, uh, And here in the Department of Communication, we study how people use media, uh, how media are great for us, how media may not be so great for us, what are uh, the ways media interact with the brain. And in particular, I run a virtual reality lab. I've been studying virtual reality since the late 1990s. And what I do is I build VR, I test to see how it changes the mind, and I examine applications that leverage what makes VR special and, and look at the use cases that can help people train and communicate and be entertained. Okay. So somewhere there in the late 90s, you came upon this, this uh, concept of VR, virtual reality. You have now written a book, uh, currently out or about to be out, uh, timing on that. Book came out on Tuesday. On Tuesday. Yeah, so really out. good timing around that. The book is called Experience on Demand. We'll get into a, a little bit of that as we as we go. Um, and what I what I wanted to get into right away was having read a little bit about your bio, which you can fill in. VR was not always your thing. Uh, you said you hopped into it in the late '90s. What was right before that that exposed you uh, to this idea? So my PhD is in cognitive science from Northwestern University, in particular cognitive psychology. And my dissertation was using mathematical models to understand how the mind works in terms of reasoning and forming categories and listening to arguments. I'd basically run experiments on people to see how uh, some mental process worked. And then we try to build a computer program that could simulate it. And I was doing that uh, between 94 and 99. And you know, two things kind of struck me about my role there. Uh, the first is I wasn't that good at it. Uh, I, there was a lot of people who were much better, better at it than I was. And, and it, I just, you know, I was, I was fine, but I, it really, my work there wasn't 
unique or special. Uh, the second thing is I just wasn't in love with it. I, um, I was working 80 hour weeks as you have to when you're getting your PhD. And, um, you know, I, I liked the research process and I, and I liked being in this kind of technology area, but I just, it, I just hadn't found my passion. And so, um, uh, by a really circuitous route, the third, kind of my third line of research at Northwestern, I was studying how people, made decisions while looking at maps. So when, why, do, why is it that we take a different route from A to B than we do from B to A? It turns out all of us have these route asymmetries in our lives, and we were trying to understand that work. I published a couple papers in that decision-making arena, and because I published in this general area of spatial reasoning, in 99 I applied to do a postdoc, which is what professors, before your professor, after your grad student, it's kind of a purgatory land, uh, to use virtual reality to understand how the, the visual system and spatial updating worked. And so I got an interview and I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara. And uh, what, what, what became really clear to me is that this job was way, way over my head in terms of what they were looking for. They really wanted somebody that knew how the retina worked and that was really deep on the, you know, the inner ear system. It was, it was really a, someone almost more biological in some ways to, to, to use VR to study how the brain works. Um, but when I was there, at UCSB interviewing for this job that I wasn't going to get, which became very clear. I was having dinner uh, with uh, who eventually became my mentor, this guy, Jim Blaskovich, and we were out at a Chinese restaurant and we were drinking a beer and he was a social psychologist, which is very different from the, the cognitive land that I came from. And, you know, we just hit it off and had a really great conversation and uh, ended up talking about all the ways VR could just change the notion of the self, could revolutionize the way social interaction works because you could do all sorts of things we'll talk about later on. And, and, and we just hit it off. And, uh, you know, I just had a really good time talking to him and I got a call. Yeah, about a week or two later, I'm sitting in my room in Chicago uh, in Wrigleyville, and I'm I, I, I'm waiting for this phone call to come because I want to get a job. And as you know, it's it's hard academia; it's as as many job markets are. And I get this phone call, uh, and it's from Santa Barbara. But instead of being from uh, you know the guy I interviewed with, it was with from Jim from Jim Blaskovich. He says, "Jeremy, I've got." Bad news for you and good news for you. And then the bad news is you didn't get the job you applied for. But he said, "How'd you like to become a social psychologist?" And I'm, hmm. It took me about 20 seconds, kind of looking around. I, I said, okay, let's do it. You know, I was kind of at my rope's end where I was uh, in my program, and I wanted to change and going to live in Santa Barbara on the ocean, learning about virtual reality sounded pretty good to me. Yeah, yeah. So was that really, as you were sitting there in that 20 seconds, and I always, in this work, I always talk to people about the conversation in their head. Yeah. You remember literally saying to yourself, well, that doesn't sound so bad, or what was the thing that picked you up? 2,000 miles or whatever it was, and was it the virtual reality piece, though, that that, that, that really grabbed you? You know, I actually have the, a flashbulb memory of sitting against the radiator, looking out the window in my room in Chicago, down at the courtyard, this inner courtyard. I re literally remember being on the call. And, uh, hmm. you know, for me, you know, in the world of psychology, uh, for better or worse, there's kind of this, you know, cognitive psychologists think that they're the cream of the crop. And, 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 and I'm sure social psychologists believe the same thing. And so to me, what I had to think about was, do I want to leave the, like at, at that time, the status of being a cog sci person and go into a field that that I didn't know. But mm. uh, uh, Drew, I have to be honest with you, for me, at the, where I was at the time, if you would have gone back to Northwestern University and pulled all of my colleagues, all the other grad students, who was the least likely guy to ever become a Stanford professor, that would have been me at the top of their list there. I mean, uh, at that point in time, I figured, you know what, before I leave academia ent entirely, let's give a try. The coolest job, 
building VR in the most amazing place in Santa Barbara. And I said, mm. what, let's, let's just, let's do that. Give it a shot. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So what is then, if we begin to fast forward to where we're sitting, what was maybe a flashbulb memory or a conversation that got you to Stanford uh, from Santa Barbara? So the book is dedicated to a guy named Clifford Ness. And uh, when you come to Stanford as an assistant professor, they assign you what's called a faculty mentor. And, and mine was Cliff. He passed away uh, a few years back. And um, Cliff, if you haven't met him, so he's famous for a book he wrote called The Media Equation. He co-authored with Byron Reeves. And it's this book about how people interact with computers and how computers are a lot more social than we thought. And Cliff, uh, I dedicate to him, he's the, the kindest genius I've ever met. He was, in any room, the smartest person, but in any room, he was just the sweetest person, just kind of falling falling all over himself in order to help you, just just, mm -hmm. just super special. And, and the conversation, when I was a postdoc at UC Santa Barbara in the year... 2002, we decided we were going to try to replicate one of Cliff's studies. So Cliff does these studies on uh, on politeness. So how you know when you are in the same room as a computer, you'll actually behave politely towards it. And his classic study is um, if there's if you do an evaluation on a, on a computer, a computer does you some. If you take a is that going to be a problem? No. Okay. Cool. Uh, if you do a learning tutorial on a computer, meaning the computer basically teaches you something online on the computer. If you then are asked to evaluate how good that program was, how good of a teacher it was, when you answer that survey on the computer you took the test from, you're actually more polite to it. You give it a higher rating than when you take it on another computer. And this weird, mindless template we have of being social actually carries out to computers. And that's one of Cliff's most famous studies. We decided we were going to replicate that in virtual reality. And... I also remember being in the room at UC Santa Barbara. I remember the, the conference call that we were on. It was myself, Andy Beal, and a guy named Ayal Aharoni. And we were designing this test. And Cliff Nass is this big, famous Stanford professor. And you know, we'd, we cold called him and, and uh, asked him to help consult to replicate a study using virtual reality. And to our surprise, he answered us. And, and, and he showed up to this call. And, and I still remember in that conversation just how thankful he was and how just delighted he was that we were doing this and how helpful and sharing anything that he, it was just this amazing, just display of being generous. You know, he's again, uh, he's a very famous scholar, uh, in, in the, in the social scientist. And so he, he was, it was a very special conversation from, from my standpoint. And then 2003, a job opens up at Stanford where they're looking for someone to do VR. And I said, huh, I know a guy there, and uh, that conversation helped me, you know, funnel the way I thought about the application, and, and, and it was it was it was one of the steps to getting there. Yeah. So I can't help but note at this juncture of the story that your breaks, if you will, or your directions were largely determined by by a conversation or set of conversations with Jim, and then a set of these conversations and a experience with this heralded scholar, not in how smart he was, but in how he treated you. So if there's one thing that stays consistent in my work is the best of the executives and professionals often lose track of that. And that's where they get in their own way. So small editorial on that based on the story uh, you've just told. So when, when I talk about, sometimes I'll tell that story when I get rambly and lecture sometimes for undergrads. And, uh, and I teach a professional issues class here at Stanford where I help the graduate students think about 
you know, how to be a professional, not just a student, and how to think about the job market. And, and one of the lessons is just, you know, don't be an asshole. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's just goes so far if you can just be nice to people. It, it's, it's, I, I can't stress enough that, that, that had I written off Jim Blaskovich because he was in a different field or because that's not what I, what I was there to think about, I would, my trajectory would be very different today. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, just be nice to people. Yeah, well... Good. Sorry for cursing. Excellent. We're going to definitely keep that in for, okay. for effect. So um, let's get then into this world that you have, at least according to one of the blurbs uh, on the back of the book from Kevin Kelly, you, you are uh, a, a quite the expert, one of the truly knowledgeable people in the world on this. Um, my link to it, as we have said before, is the connection and the curiosity more than anything of how is virtual, how does virtual reality, uh, which you can, of course, I'm sure briefly explain how it works, uh, how is it going to affect relationships in the future? That really is where I see, you know, my clients with both curiosity and having to face that reality. So tell me that. Uh, how, how is what you're discovering out there uh, affecting relationships at work, in personal life, et cetera? So virtual reality is an experience where basically instead of watching a movie or playing a video game, you're inside a simulation. It responds to your body movements. Uh, you're perceptually surrounded, so wherever you turn your head, you see things. Sounds are spatialized. There's virtual touch where if you touch an object, you'll get vibrations in your hand. For those that haven't tried it, it just feels like you're inside of a virtual place, and it feels really compelling. Um, so the when we do demos in our lab, uh, people, they come in saying, huh, what is this thing? Is it like a computer? And then they try it out, and what they realize, the book is called Experience on Demand because the brain treats it like a real experience. When you go in VR, there's no pixels and there's no field of view. There's no, uh, there's no jargon. You're just doing something, and it feels like it's happening to you. How that relates to conversations, I mean, I could talk for hours and mm. hours about it. So chapter seven of the book is called Bringing the Social Back to the Network. And if you think about one way that media is affecting relationships right now is that the way that we're communicating with people is not non-verbally. It's not natural. We're, we've gone back to this you know, very antiquated notion of typing in very small telegram-like bursts via text. And, 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 and one of the things that VR is going to do is to allow people to be together and to maintain eye contact and you know, things that you don't get now over video conference because you don't have that intimacy, that connection. VR gets you there. It feels like you're with someone. You can you know, literally reach out and touch someone, feel that, that, that virtual touch. And uh, you know, one of the quests I've been on for quite some time is you know, when, when you look back 30 years from now, and maybe even 10 years from now is, is, is my hope and dream. You know, imagine that you're watching a movie from the 1970s and there's a doctor you know, consulting a patient and the doctor's got a lit cigarette in his mouth and he's blowing, blowing onto the patient that's there to be treated for something. We look at that and laugh. Uh, can you believe, well, not laugh, but we just, what else can you do? Can you believe we used to do that? Now, my father works in the Bronx. He lives up in Northern Westchester. He gets in a box every single day for an hour, drives right behind a bunch of other people in boxes, arrives at work and basically talks on the phone and types on a computer for most of the day. And, and, and what I don't want to do, Drew, I don't want to get rid of what you and I are doing right now. Like, you know, this is different than what we had on the phone. We're, we're getting to know each other. I don't want to replace social interaction. I do believe that there's a subset of work that is just 
or there's a subset of travel that just doesn't need to be there. Maybe we commute to work three days a week instead of five. Maybe we don't fly across the world. You know, I've literally, I, I just, you're going to see some irony here. I flew all the way to Malaysia to talk about how you can use VR to combat to combat climate change and improve conservation. And, <laughs> and think of the fossil fuels that I spent to go all the way over there to give a one-hour talk that, uh, you know, just between us and, and the listeners, I guess, uh, was very similar to a talk I'd already given on YouTube that they could have just played. And obviously having me there really added something, but VR is going to give you that best of both worlds. It it's, it's, feels like you're there and that person is there, but we're just going to not have to, have to travel. Good, good. Well... Explain then a little bit more about the experience that the lab is creating and how that hopefully, apparently, is going to get out into the world. So I, I was here two weeks ago to meet you and, and, and tour the lab and got to do uh, the experience. Uh, and it certainly, as you say, was a, a fascinating thing. Uh, what are you hoping to take out of the lab of all those different kinds of experiences, what's the piece that you hope gets out to the, we'll call the average person? So let me talk about a few instances that have scaled up, and then we'll get to the ones that I'm really hoping get out there. Okay. And so some nice examples um, are around training, and training not just procedural skills, but how to talk to people. And so one of the projects that we have worked on in the lab for quite some time is about empathy. If you go into VR and you look down and you see, whoa, my skin color has changed, or wow, I've become somebody who's 60 years old and I'm only 20, or if uh, I go from becoming a male to a female, we call this body transfer. Psychologically, it really feels like you've become someone else. The next stage in our experiments is that you walk around VR and there's a second person that gets networked into VR with you and that person treats you poorly uh, based on your race or your gender and, and, and says things that are inappropriate or hurtful or even threatening. And so what we've been doing since 2003 is publishing papers that show that when you have this intense experience in VR of becoming someone else, walking a mile in their shoes, that in general, that tends to change your behavior later on. It tends to make you uh, more helpful to others. It tends to change your attitudes. And we've published a lot of work on that. Um, a few examples of those academic findings now going out into the world. So one is with uh, the company Fidelity. Uh, Fidelity has built uh, with, uh, so uh, full disclosure, I've co-founded a company called Striver. Uh, Striver is a company that uses VR for training. Um, so this is Striver work. Fidelity, when you are going to work in a call center, uh, you got to be trained. And, you know, working in a call center is, is tough work. And, you know, the, the decisions that the people on the other end of the calls are making, which is where do we put their money, are really important ones. And so what we've built for Fidelity is, a, is taking that empathy research. And when you're in a call center training, you get to basically hit a button and magically get transported into the living room of the person that you are talking to. So maybe as you now are asking questions of this person, you get to see, huh, she's on crutches and she can't actually get into her car to go to the bank. Or there's a huge stack of bills on the, uh, on the table. And by getting a better understanding of the client, you then get to ask different questions. And so you iterate and get to repeat this conversation kind of like Groundhog Day. And what we're doing is we're using very low-level AI to basically guide the questions that you're asking based on the experiences that you have when you show connection to the other person. Got it. Wow. And you also 
the piece that I re- do remember and has obviously been translated out into the real world is helping with sports training. Um, you've got, I was noticing Joe Montana on the back of the book talking about the, the big difference that, that VR is making in that. Tell your favorite uh, anecdote, and I'm sure there are many, of where sports has been impacted by VR. Well, uh, it, probably this season, let's stay topical and relevant. Um, Case Keenum, the quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings, uh, who you know had had some rough seasons uh, before this this season. He had been cut from a couple teams, and uh, you know uh, some people call him a quote journeyman end quote. Uh, he took over 2,600 virtual repetitions this season, meaning he put on the helmet, and what he would do is he would get to see pre-snap before the ball snapped. He'd get to see the defense, look around, try to recognize the defense, practice where to look, decide whether or not he was going to change the call, uh, and then communicate that. So he would basically get to relive extra virtual uh, practice, and he took to, to put that in perspective, uh, he played a lot of games and, and took a lot of snaps, but he took twice as many snaps in VR as he did in the physical world. Uh, and uh, by all expectations, he had a stunning, stunning uh, season that defied most people's predictions and expectations. Now, look, he did it because of his brilliance, his talent, and his hard work. VR was a tool that, that helped a little bit. That's great. Great. Well, there's, there is one two-part question I have for us to begin to conclude. I know you're Got a lot to do and uh, appreciate all the time you've, you've taken today. But let me split the question this way. When you think about what you see, what you've experienced in the building of this, the first question I'm, one, I'm wondering about is what has been the most inspiring part of it to you? What has excited you the most? And then what worries you about VR. You obviously have many depths of understanding of it. So what inspires you and what worries you? So so let me start with the worry part, um, because uh, this has been a sobering week for me. I've uh, been doing a lot of media appearances about the book, and the book got reviewed by the New York Times and featured on NPR and reviewed in a lot of places. uh, And if there's a theme that's coming out uh, of cross these reviews and, and kind of I get a sense for the the zeitgeist through the, the you know the people who are interviewing me you know the book is getting critiqued for being too optimistic I, I think there's a there's a growing concern about the role social media is playing in our lives and and uh, I in the New York Times review for example the you know uh, Kathy O'Neill says it's it's great I enjoyed it but you know then spends five or six paragraphs saying you really need to stop being naive and think about all the abuse that's going to happen in VR. And so um, now chapter two of my book is called You Are What You Eat and is all about the downsides of VR. And, and let's spend a few minutes talking about what those are. Uh, the first one that consumes concerns me the most is distraction, which is that when you're wearing VR goggles, you can't see the world around you. Uh, you're going to step on the cat. You're going to walk out into traffic, smash into walls. Uh, sadly, uh, tragically, uh, there is a man uh, in Russia, in Moscow, who died in December because while playing a VR game, he fell through a plate glass table and bled to death. So they're, you know, similar to smartphones, which cause many deaths each year due to distraction, distracted driving. Uh, VR is going to cause some problems there. Second is addiction. Uh, If you think about the VR, the best party you've ever been at, every social media occurrence is going to be the best party you've ever been at. Uh, Pornography will feel like sex. Uh, 
online gambling will feel like Las Vegas. It's we're going to have some issues about you know how to manage what you do in the world when VR gets that good. The third is simulator sickness. So if you've ever used VR for a long enough time, you kind of feel a little bit wonky, uh, and that's not going away anytime soon. Which is one of the reasons why why I advocate you know about a twenty minute rule. Uh, take it off after twenty minutes, and that that's about enough. Um, there's learning bad habits, so I'm very proud to have spent a lot of my time and effort helping our soldiers get better uh, at their jobs, and I, I want our soldiers to be the best in the world at combat, but I don't want citizens to have access to the most amazing training simulations that actually give you the muscle memory uh, and also give you the proper skills to succeed at violence. So it's a it's a different kind of thing when when when. This, these intense experiences are, are in VR. Uh, so we can go on. There, there are right. downsides to VR. So um, wh where I fall now as I come and, and, and I'm coming to guidelines for how to think about VR. And, and you know, today I'm going to, uh, I won't say the name of the company, but I'm going to, of the three players in the VR space that, uh, that are the big tech companies, I'm going to spend the entire afternoon basically telling them what I'm about to tell you. Uh, and I'm also doing the other two companies in the, in the next few weeks. So uh, they are listening to this, uh, this message. Because of the downsides, don't use VR for everything. Save it for things that, if you were to do an experience in the real world, it would hit one of four standards, and I'll go over each of them. Impossible, dangerous, counterproductive, or rare and expensive. So let's start with impossible. Changing your skin color, that's impossible. It's hard to do that in the real world. These empathy transformations are something that, that work in VR because you can't do them in the real world. The second is dangerous. Where do we get VR? We get VR from flight simulators in the late 1920s. Uh, Link decided that I want to learn how to fly, but he didn't want to do it from a pan from a pamphlet, and so he invents the flight simulator, and that's one of the greatest. You know, lives are expensive, uh, planes are expensive. Let's learn when it's safe, and uh, that that's uh, you know that certainly applies to a lot of our athletes. If we if Case Keenum had taken all those extra reps physically, he would be fatigued and maybe get hurt. So the, the, that's an example there. Counterproductive, uh, we do a lot of work uh, on climate change. So uh, if I'm going to show you, say, the Arctic, or if I'm going to show you a reef that's been devastated by ocean acidification, if I were to fly every person from here to that spot to show them the devastation, that would be a counterproductive way to teach climate change. But VR gives you the best of both worlds. It feels like you're there, but you don't have to actually you know, destroy things to get there. And then the final one is probably the bucket that most people think about, which is just super expensive things. It's, it's expensive to fly to you know, go see the Great Wall of China, uh, but in VR you can do it uh, more cheaply, and, and, and there are lots of applications there. You, know, you and I talked about, uh, a few weeks back, we talked about high school debate, and uh, mm -hmm. one of the, the home run areas of VR that before this consumer revolution that you know even 20 years ago people were succeeding and making money is public speaking. And so it, it, it's expensive to fill a room with 20 or 30 actors to speak in front of VR. They're there on demand. Anytime you hit a button and you've got a, a crowd that you can dial up how nice and how not nice they are. Got it. Wow. Plenty of application. So is that what ends up being your inspiration that carries you through all the warnings that you put out? I mean, how do you, how do you continue to, to have the hope and the drive that you obviously do? Yeah, so first of all, I actually think the companies are trying to do the right thing here. I, I, you know, I know that's a unpopular view right now and maybe I'm naive, but I actually, of the downsides I talked about, you know, I'm going to talk to them today and, and, and later this week. And I, I, I don't, 
think the companies want to leverage addicted people, and I don't think they want to teach people how to, you know, do combat. Uh, maybe that's naive, but I, 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 I'm hoping that they embrace the good sides of this while minimizing. I'm not totally naive, but right. minimizing the, the economic forces that perpetuate the others. Yeah, interesting. Well, Jeremy, it is always the hope on this show that interesting people share interesting interpretations of this whole notion of simple conversation, and you have exceeded by far any hope I have. Thank you for, for doing that. The book is called Experience on Demand by Jeremy Balenson, and uh, I was fortunate enough to sit and talk to you today. So, so I really appreciate you. it. Thanks yeah. both for doing this and for saying that. Thank you're, you. You're welcome.